Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. How much? I think we might have gotten just the last poo on that. But you know just where the, the worst place, the worst place to wear your contacts all the time would be? It was in the desert. <gasps> that's 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 damn right. Uh, actually, God, can you imagine how dry everyone's eyes must have been at all times in <laughs> this mean, movie? Even, even with the shawl covering the face, like even in, Peter O'Toole's beautiful giant. Seemingly very wet eyes must have been absolutely dry. Everybody's right. eyes are so wet in this movie, and it yeah. really does heighten the whole like pee pee cry man. You just feel bad for them in any given scene if they're even if they're talking about slaughtering Turks. It's fantastic. It rocks how much of this movie is devoted to people talking about how bad the desert fucking sucks. Like there is a lot of time devoted to them being like, no actual Arab likes the desert, dude. I love that one scene where they tell him that he's like, the desert's beautiful. And he's like, no dude, it sucks. We hate it here. Fuck you. Like, Nobody shut likes up. the desert. Yeah. We survive it. Uh, try love. This podcast is try love. We talk about movies. We see at the lawn. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, my name is for my friends and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. The trick is not minding that it squirts. I'm Cody Narvison and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Uh, well, okay. Listen, so a beginning is the time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. To begin your study of the life of T.E. Lawrence, then, take care that you place him in his time, born in the 88th year of His Royal Majesty Edward VII, and take most special care that you locate Lawrence in his place, the Arabian Peninsula. Do not be deceived by the fact that he was born in Wales and lived his first nine years there. Saudi, the desert known as Arabia, is forever his place. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at PunishTake. Harry asked if it was okay if he did that, and I'm so glad that he did. Uh, it is a <laughs> well, it, it, what what a what a great intro. Um, I made a mistake. I, it's not. It's he was born in nine in 1888, which is why I said the 88th. But it wasn't probably uh, the 88th year of Edward VII's rule, unless he was a very old man at that time. <laughs> and he did live until like the 1910s, I believe. So it probably wasn't his 88th year. But you get what? I'm damn. Saying. I I would assume the sepsis would have taken him way earlier than that. Uh. This is a podcast where we talk about movies we saw at the Triline Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trial of Podcast. Uh, in lieu of our friend Aaron Grossman, who is not able to join us today, I'm going to give it the official yes, indeed, folks, and start the patented Aaron Grossman <laughs> summary. Oh, <laughs> like, those are the right. that's the bit you're talking about. <laughs> it's one of a couple. Yes. <laughs> The patented Aaron Grossman summary under exclusive license from AG Enterprises LTD starts now. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia is a 1962 historical drama film directed by David Lean and starring Peter O'Toole, Omar Sharif, Anthony Quinn, Claude Rains, and more. It traces the exploits of British off real life exploits of British officer and diplomat T.E. Lawrence, played by Peter O'Toole. During the Arab Revolt against the Ottoman Empire during World War One, a bit of a quirky little white boy and a misfit among the soldier ranks, uh, Lawrence is dispatched to assess the state of the conflict between the Arabs and the Turks by meeting with Prince Faisal, played by Alec Guinness. Very, 
very hilariously and appropriately played by Alec Guinness. Re- excuse me, regional leader. Right? Of it, like, the- it sucks that it's like maybe his best performance and, and one of the best performances really I've ever seen. He's he like just- so fucking good in this movie. He is also just in brownface the entire time, and it yeah. really sucks so bad. <laughs> like complete and total, all the way to the tips of his eyelids, brownface. Uh, that is, he's playing Prince Faisal in that role, regional leader of the pan-Arab world. Things are not going well in the Arab fight for independence as the Turkish forces are better equipped and better organized by their German allies. Lawrence steps in as sort of a self-appointed military strategist, leading several Arab tribes to strategic victories in Turkish-occupied territories. Uh, the film focuses on the relationships Lawrence builds with the white people and land of the Arabian Peninsula, including Faisal, Sheriff Ali, played by Omar Sharif, uh, Aud- Auda Abu Tai, the leader of a local mercenary tribe played by Anthony Quinn. Again, questionably, um, uh, the first half of the movie, but we do stand a king who can play Greek and Italian uh, and an Arab, and he's actually Mexican-American, so go figure. And all um, you have to do is put the worst prosthetic nose you've ever seen on him. <laughs> it looks That's like all. a dead appendage. It's really bad. Uh, the first half of the movie covers Lawrence's hubristic rise to prominence in the Arab theater, while the second follows his fall from grace as his friendships and mental well-being begin to crumble after a string of failures to mitigate key military losses, some personal trauma, and his active participation in the increasingly violent conflict. Lawrence of Arabia was a crit- global, critical, and commercial success at the time of its release, including 11 Academy Award nominations and seven wins, with praise directed toward its visual style, scale, character focus, and performances. Rated feel old, everybody. Lawrence of Arabia is 61 years old this year and has also come to be considered one of the greatest films of all time. It is considered, excuse me, is credited with influencing many of the world's best-known filmmakers, including Steven Spielberg, Akira Kurosawa, Brian De Palma, Sam Peckinpah, and Catherine Bigelow. I hope that's a big enough summary for a big enough movie. Um, the scale big. so big. Sorry, Jason. Can you remind me how that segment started? It started with uh, we have yes, indeed, folks. Okay, Every time. perfect. Sorry, I got I Every got lost time. in the weeds there. Thank you. It's sort of like opening the door. Otherwise, we would just be waiting for it to start. I realized there was something missing, uh, and it was that yes, indeed, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, it's kind of like how we can't say the name of the movie until the summary. We can't start talking about the movie in, until we've heard him say yes indeed folks does not does not matter that this has not been established yet uh and do not ask me how many episodes i needed to go back to find one that he where he wasn't saying like i realized i came up with that rule that he says yes every time he starts it and then i realized actually it's not that many episodes <laughs> i had to go back like five or six episodes to get him on it saying it uh massive movie obviously uh, incredible like cultural significance to the whole medium of filmmaking um and just sort of a massive story on its own i keep using the term massive because it's what came to mind while i was watching it everybody sort of directs praise or note toward just how big it feels how open how large it feels i think it's really interesting what it does with that scale but i want to open up the floor to everybody's thoughts about sort of the the prominence of this movie have you seen it before is this something that had that mattered to you before you saw it that kind of thing uh harry is this is this your first time it is actually yeah um i've heard of this movie for a long time it's sort of you know generally considered one of the best um my mom's a huge fan of it as well. Uh, she's a big fan of a lot of classic movies, and she always told me I should check this one out. Um, never really had the chance or, or better, um, I guess, to be more honest. Like, I never wanted to sit down and watch a four-hour movie. Um, but this weekend, I was cat-sitting for my dad, and so I just I sat down. I had a single beer, and I <laughs> pet wow. that kitty and, and watched this movie on a, on a lazy uh, summer afternoon, and it was delightful. Um, I was really blown away by this. Um, it turns out, right, that like a movie that everybody calls one of the best movies of all time turn- is incredibly good. Um, I have to admit, I, I came in with um, 
a little bit of trepidation. I knew about the brown face. I knew about the casting of British uh, players as um, Arab people in the Middle East or in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, I did not expect this to be um, basically an epic tragedy about a guy who thinks that he is going to be able to, to, through sort of sheer force of will and character, beat the British Empire at its own game and how wrong he is about that and how wrong it turns out he is about what he's doing and why and how the entire movie is sort of a um, massive come-to-Jesus moment about reconciling with one's own ego and where ego comes from and what it makes you do and what it makes you, more importantly, how it makes you perceive the people around you and treat them and use them. And it really becomes this like incredibly nuanced allegory for like empire without losing the uh like really nuanced and and beautiful characterization of a single man uh the fact that it can hold both of those things and it still has room for legitimately a lot of other absolutely fascinating character portraits um i think like omar sharif uh is probably my favorite here right as uh sharif ali um who who sort of like he plays this um almost like like buddy cop to to Lawrence uh, for lack of a better term or or foil at the beginning of the movie and he goes on this parallel character arc and where they end up in this movie is so fascinating to me and so legitimately subversive where by the end of the movie he is sort of the conscience that Lawrence kind of was for him at the beginning of the movie um I found that fascinating and so I just um, almost despite myself right because I was like oh yeah this is it's a movie canonizing a controversial figure from british imperial history uh it i was really from the very first scene i found it remarkable how much the movie seemed to anticipate my uh objections to it and respond to them in many ways it feels like it was ahead of its time in fact um and like i it's it's interesting that like a lot of the contemporary criticism, it's sort of like uh, what we talked about with Superfly, where it was like, I think some of their issues with it are actually my favorite parts of the movie. I mean, like, people found this to be a very controversial, somewhat historically inaccurate version of, of Lawrence. A lot of people were offended that it sort of portrayed him as this egotistical megalomaniac um, who is also more than a little queer. Uh, and maybe we, we can talk about that as well. Um, but I found that to be an absolutely like brilliant and like essential allegorical characterization. Um, and it really helped. I mean, I can't believe how quickly I was won over by this movie, right? Like I came in not wanting, not really that excited about it, to be honest. And then, um, like by the time he's with his original guide in the Arab desert, I'm I was so on board and remained so for the entire watch. So I I really enjoyed this. I was really captivated by its politics. I recognize the ways in which it is aged poorly in many ways, but I think it, it's like I think that there's something here that is sort of like um, a really eternal. Uh, resonant idea about how we think about the great men of history and and their their part in history that really holds up in my opinion and, and is yeah. a really good um like subject for a movie like this yeah far more nuanced than you might first imagine uh cody was this your first time watching lawrence of arabia uh this was my second time my first time it, i mean it feels like a, a past life at this point i, I watched it <clears throat> maybe 
somewhere around a decade ago. Um, my friend Pat and I have a whole list of movies. This was, I think, on that initial like iteration of the list, our first like slate of movies where it's like, we know these are classics and we want to watch them. It was back when I do not nearly have the like strength of media, strength and scare quotes, strength of media literacy that I have now. I was definitely like the things that I would have thought back on with regards to this movie. Um, it's hard not to latch on to Peter O'Toole's performance. Um, those big, big old watery blue eyes of his that we were talking about. Um, just, and my God, the, I mean, we'll probably gush about it a lot. There's going to be at least one segment later on that talks about the visuals of this film, but honestly, like at the end of the day, a, a lot of what you need to do to just like capture great images on film is to go out to the fucking scalding desert, set up your camera, pull back a little bit and just like, just, it's all it's right there. It's so, I don't know if, if anything else, this film just looks so mm-hmm. goddamn good. Um, and then like coming back to it this time around uh, and like noticing how uh, like critical it is about both its main subjects, but also um, like the structures that, uh, that Lawrence kind of operates within. Uh, I got thinking a lot about Barry Lyndon while watching this, especially in kind of the, the latter half, which not speaking too much to that if folks or for folks who haven't seen it, but there's, definitely an element of like failing upwards and the sort of um various uh like push push and pulls from various parties that may that help enable the like failing upwards of the the main subject and there's not to just like jump to the end of this movie but there there was something especially as the last sort of pieces began to fall into place for like where these people would end up with me having a poor memory from how just things went the first time around when I originally saw this movie, there's something just like very humbling and anger inducing about seeing all of the, or not all of these, um, many of these still like characters who have made it through the, the story alive, just like ending up in a room together, like talking bullshit world politics, just like, man, that's okay. So that's, that's what this movie was the whole time. Um, and so, yeah, like, like Harry was saying, like there, there are, components of this movie that I, I think like absolutely hold up uh, some shit that uh, very much does not hold up. But um, yeah, no, I, I really uh, relished in the opportunity to, to come back and revisit this. Um, and I could see myself, I don't know, doing that every so, but yeah, I don't know, three hours, 47 minutes. Um, you know, it's always, it's always tough to, to muster up the energy to do that much less anything. Um uh, doing anything is hard. Uh, that's uh, on a shirt that I'm wearing right now, but, um, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of that runtime is, is well warranted. Um, so yeah, I don't know, Jason, was this, did you say, was this your first time seeing it? What was, you have any sort of, uh, history with this movie or not so much? I have seen it before. I saw it once when I was a kid, my mom was always on TCM. So it was on one day and we ended up watching it. I didn't remember a whole lot of that watching, but I remember like enjoying it enough to make it the first Blu-ray I ever watched on my PlayStation three, my first Blu-ray player. Wow. I I, I did splurge a little bit. It was like, I was making next to nothing between allowance and a summer job. And, uh, and yeah, I had probably $25 in my pocket, spent 23 of them on a Blu-ray of Lawrence of Arabia. And I've never looked back. I've, I've watched that movie probably three or four times since then. But the last time I did was maybe 2017 or 18. Just it, it, it yeah, like you definitely see after repeated watch how it becomes sort of just sort of canonized comfort watching type thing. It's not a very comfortable story or narrative. Like it's pretty, pretty incredibly stark and depressing, but just the like 
I could see putting it on even silent, just in the background, just to have it move, you know, in front of you. Um, it does this. I'm glad you both brought up like both the nuance and Cody, you brought up sort of the expanded scope of having so many different people who help define the character. It helps it like I think from the very beginning, the opening scene, I'd forgotten this after every time I watch it, I forget it. It starts with a scene uh, of like dramatizing T. Lawrence's actual like the way he died on a motorcycle. He doesn't see some kids around a corner, uh, flies off his handlebars and dies. Um, and he's remembered at a memorial service by the number of people that you're going to meet throughout the movie. And they all kind of like disavow, uh, like really knowing him that well. And they call him an immense man, but they sort of like, they don't assassinate his character much, but they just sort of like treat him as another, I mean, like, at one point somebody calls him the greatest exhibitionist since, uh, Barnum e. Barnum, right. Yeah. yeah. I liked, I, I quite like, it's like, I think it's just from that moment we start to widen the scope beyond it's obviously T.E. Lawrence's story, it's like told with a certain amount of sympathy here and a certain amount of criticism there that sort of keeps the balance flowing, keeps that tension high, keeps the character interesting, but it never feels like character like rehabilitation or assassination because of the widened scope of how many people we meet. We meet a lot of them who are going to like actually see the movie through in that very first scene. Well, second scene, I suppose. And then throughout the movie, we start to meet more. We like sort of round other perspectives of how he's seen by the people of Arabia, by how he's seen by his uh, military counterparts, how he's seen by the media and like popular image. It just continues to build a rounder, larger image of the character, which I think starts to address, like Harry was saying, assuming that this is, you know, sort of just a character portrait of a brave white savior of the Arab peninsula and helped, you know, uh, Arabs uh, gain independence from the Ottoman empire uh, during world war two, or excuse me, world war one, not really like at a broadest sense. Yes. If you like painted it with a gigantic brush sure if you saw it from one perspective sure but it's i think that's the secret sauce for me at least of watching this movie and getting that narrative tension is that there are just so many people that we get so much time with uh out of abu Taya, the guy who played uh, that um anthony quinn plays even he has like an internal journey with like he's not the biggest character in the movie he's sort of a leader of a an opportunity opportunistic mercenary tribe um and even he is given like that opportunity to learn to have a journey with his with his own relationship to T.E. Lawrence and by extension, sort of the whole British military complex. Um, obviously, uh, Sharif Ali, incredible, like a very complex, de de deep character, but only given that through like interactions with the main character and sort of when they have their parting near the end, it means that much more to both characters because they have been given that interiority because they've been given that sort of like perspective of each other. And because we have two, we've gotten to see Sharif, like, sorry, Ali, uh, sort of like living and pursuing things and having his own opinions separate of Lawrence. But like our lens generally is T.E. Lawrence. I, I just think it's like, it necessarily is that big. I think it ties in with how big the movie feels and how like large format the filling was and how often we see even small spaces as gigantic, the inside of a tent, a Bedouin tent, or the inside of, uh, you know, the consulate in, I forget where they are, Damascus, where things are just like feeling gigantic with a very small number of people or very intimate setting. Um, I think it's just like we have formally and conceptually expanded the scope beyond T.E. Lawrence, that it's not just a hero's journey story. It's not just like iconoclasm. It is something that builds a much more real, much more nuanced picture of the character in a way that I don't think many movies have done, especially formally. Some of my favorite movies include big wide desert shots and they feel like like baby idiot child's play compared to how this movie is using specifically that um, format. But I see both hands up. So I'm going to relinquish the mic for a moment so that people can respond. I really like what you're saying about broadening that scope formally, because I also think that like 
it's it's amazing that it manages to do both of these things. But I think that it starts out broadening that scope um, in order to sort of seduce you with um, the justificatory or romanticism of T.E. Lawrence himself, because this is a movie that needs to get you in the headspace that Lawrence was in. It needs to get you rooting for him. I mean, I made the joke early on, but it's not unlike Dune, right? Where like the, the first part of Dune is about getting you to like root for Paul Atreides so that when he does the things that he does and it turns out the way it turns out, it feels like the rug is being pulled out from under you. This happens similarly, right? Where like, yeah. Um, uh, where Lawrence is set up as uh, a misfit, right? And this is where I think a big part of the queer um, reading comes in for me. I believe uh, it's controversial, but the, the historical figure T.E. Lawrence is queer or probably was queer. Um, this character is played arguably pretty queerly, but even if he's not literally queer, the way that he's coded as this sort of He's more effeminate. He's more intellectual. He's he's more playful. Uh, he is less toxic in his masculinity. Uh, he cares more about his appearance. He cares more about um, being clever and funny and and silly, right? And um, all of those things make him a misfit within the British Army. And it also gives him this massive chip on his shoulder, right? Where like he has never risen where a man of his in his mind and as the movie portrays him, obvious intelligence and charisma and magnitude deserves to be. And he really wants to show everyone that he can do this, that that he has the ability to be this great man, that he has this charisma to shape history. So this is where we meet him. And um, especially when he, when he's given this opportunity, right, to go on this literal adventure is what they refer to it as. At one point he says, oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, to, to go out there and, and change the course of, of World War One by converting uh, the Arabs into a unified fighting force that can defeat the Turks, right? Basically, on behalf of the British government, he thinks it's a it's a grand adventure to finally prove his worth, and we we feel that with him, right? Like the score swells, and we go out to this desert, and we see this fantastic dude who is so charismatic and whom we like so much doing these amazing things. And look, he's, he's outflanking everyone, right? He's so much smarter than the British are. And he knows the Arab language. He knows how to speak Arabic and he knows the tribes and, and how the tribes relate to each other. And he, he walks the desert like one born to it, right? Not unlike the Mod Dib himself, where like that's his original characterization with the Arab uh, guide. Of, of his and we want to see him win we want to see like we we think he deserves it and then that makes this turn and this broadening of the scope that you referred to in the second act uh jason or the sort of second half of the movie hit so much harder when we sort of start to realize as lawrence starts to realize that like his adventure for him is sort of like his hero's journey. He's the protagonist of reality. He's like winning this war. He's he's doing these great deeds so that he'll be immortalized, really so that he can beat the British at their own game. And then all of a sudden he realizes that he's playing the British's game, right? Mm -hmm. That he is still fundamentally dehumanizing these people. He's using them as pawns on a chessboard in order to um, like establish his own legacy and there are a lot of real people who are really being hurt right and is he really doing this for like the arabian people is he really doing this for um 
the the people that he purports to be helping or is he doing it to satisfy his own ego and even more importantly i think to like prove something to these people that he's not supposed to even really need to prove something to right like i think he wants to think of himself as beyond the british army as as beyond the Englishness inside of him, when in reality it does define who he is, right? Because everything he does is because he wants to show something to the people that have undervalued him in his own mind. And that drives him to do some pretty terrible things. And then I think the movie does a really great job of sort of like all of a sudden it like, I, it's hard to describe almost how it does it, but like it tilts your perspective just so we're like, we're following Lawrence, following Lawrence. And then just as Lawrence starts to see the people around him as people, basically, as he enters the sort of bloodier, less decisive second half of his campaign, we start to see, too, how, oh, the way that we have been perceiving these people as this sort of, like, opportunity, this adventure for Lawrence to go on is deeply problematic, it turns out. And, like, what an idea, like, what a journey to take through a character to sort of explore what like imperial power looks like and what it does to the world, the way that it sort of reorganizes the world in its image, right? It's it's a really fascinating sort of rhetorical game that they're playing in this movie. No, totally. And I, I think the, I don't know, hearing y'all uh, and us, I guess, talk about it, it further reaffirms in my head that we've talked about the, the halves of this film. And, you know, the first half definitely... Uh, especially in retrospect, it comes across so much as, you know, this is the, the, the plucky story of someone with like an almost entrepreneurial spirit of just like finding yes. his hustle. Um, and like, it, we're, we're talking about how charismatic this guy is and that like, that is just to like hammer at home again. That is like what you need, like what the movie is banking on quite successfully to like bring you in, draw you in and be sold on this guy. Um, you know, even from the, the his initial sort of interactions with his uh, original guide Tafas, the whole like you know I'm not going to drink water until you do, just like little things like that. It's not quite like a, a save the cat moment, but it is like you know it's an earnest attempt at human connection. Um, there it, and as he goes more and more, people see in him this sort of like bold, poetic moxie where there's nothing like intangibly um, coherent about his capabilities. Like obviously he was driven away from the place he was at within the first like 17 ish minutes or so the 17 and a half minutes is when I have that cut with the blowing of the match, which Ooh, baby. Um, it's like one of the, uh, from what I can tell, one of the most like all time famous uh, edits and it's so good. It doesn't disappoint, but, uh, and then we're just, we're in a completely new space, completely new movie. Um, you know, it's on him to, to be sold uh, or rather for Prince Faisal, for instance, to like be sold upon him. And, you know, he, recognize he recognizes certain shortcomings but also he's intrigued by his like youthful naive uh dumb passion uh which you know as we know later you know like uh faisal and, and claude Rains' character and others you know see things that you know they be he becomes a tool and those shortcomings those flaws become tools that they you know start to leverage um and then i guess on the positive side you have uh sharif ali who you know, starts out, they have sort of like a violent meat cute when Sharif Ali uh, murders Tafas. And then the the most like hyped I got was when they, they were um, in that meeting with, uh, oh God, um, uh, Aura Abu Tai. Uh, and like, they're just like visually pitted, just um, Sharif Ali and Lawrence uh, 
like squaring off, clearly broing out and just like on the same page. It's just like moments of that where Lawrence, you know, again, you're all that is to say, like you are, you're being sold on Lawrence winning people over. Um, and you know, in the end it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, how do I want to put this? It's, you know, Claude Rains and, and Faisal, the people sitting at the top of this mountain, looking at Lawrence and being like, we're making a fantastic four movie and Lawrence is our Josh Trank. And if it goes, if it goes well, great. If it goes poorly, well, we have a fall guy. And like, it's just like, how, how could you, how could you do this? How could you like overtake this city and just like not have a follow-up plan? It's almost like you clearly weren't suited for this and weren't telling us this the whole time. It's like fucking yeah, dude. Um, (laughs) And that's why, uh, hence the reason why he's just like laughing. One of the last scenes that he's in. Um, I don't know. I've 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 gone on long enough about um this this unstable white boy with a gun that is uh, T. E. Yeah. Lawrence. Um, so, I don't know. Any of that sing for you, Jason? <laughs> the, the Not the Trank being an unstable reference. white boy with a gun, but oh yes, I I don't know where I pulled well, that out of. I'm not unstable. Um, the Josh Trank right. reference really did take me home. Uh, but it like both what you and Harry were saying about sort of the Lawrence we meet in the first half versus the Lawrence we are come to know in the second half, and I mean again, must be said, if a film is longer than like two hours, 15 minutes, it should probably have an intermission. And it should probably, as Harry was saying, it should probably just feature the music of the movie in the middle. Dude, it's Wonderful so experience. Good. I love oh that. Even at home, I love that. The last time I saw that in a movie, Hateful Eight had an intermission. Uh, I saw like the 63, whatever millimeter road show that they did back when that came through the cities. Um, but anyway, uh, the sort of Lawrence we have in the second half and how we're like, there's not a whole lot of time has passed between the first and second halves of this movie. I think it's maybe days or weeks, but it's just like very subtly played as a different character as somebody else. You're like, you remember this guy? Well, he's pretty much continued on the same path. Uh, he got really into, you know, Arab revolts and nobody ever really heard from him again. Kind of thing. Like he, he shows up, we see the second act start with, Lawrence um, aiding the Arabs in exploding the Turks railway, pretty essential to their military operations and civilian operations. They're exploding the Turks railway. They're raiding the rail cars. Uh, They are like just pillaging and looting as they go. Um, And Lawrence is at the front of all of this. And he's still like, it feels a little bit, okay, these are the, this is the reality of war. It's sort of what they need to do to win. It's their independence movement. But then it starts to slowly like he gets shot during one of these in- interactions. He's shot in the shoulder, not obviously just a flesh wound. Uh, and I think it's the I forget if it's one of his uh, British COs or if it's the journalist asks him like, hey, you're shot. Aren't you like, or do you need help? And he's like, nothing can kill me but a golden bullet. And he's clearly lost his mind at that moment. But like he says it in the same exact way as he was saying all these charming, wonderful, convincing lines in the first half to where you're like. All right, let's see where this goes. He climbs up on a train car and one of my favorite moments of the movie, it's one of, it's like, it's where everything's singing the shots, the music, the performances, even of extras in the background where he's running along the trail, the rain, one of the like toppled rail cars. Uh, and all you see of him is his feet and shadow in the background and everybody, all of the Bedouin who are uh, helping loot the train, they're sort of waving their uh, scarves, beautiful, colorful thing. And the theme kicks in that beautiful da 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 da. But and it's like, like, Oh no, it's, it's like, it's like, I, I don't think it's minarchy. I don't know exactly how to describe it because I think even the main theme is like in a mode rather than a key. 
but it's just like a little bit off kilter, a little bit wacky. And you're like, okay, so now he's not just aiding a thing. He's not just doing it. He's sort of right. like, he's inciting a certain level of chaos and violence that Your aligns with. Your relationship to the exactly. main theme itself evolves. It's right? so like, beautiful. It's, by the end of the movie, you have a different perception of what the main theme is than you exactly. did at the beginning. Just like you do about the man. It's That was legitimately going to be one of my gifs, by the way, was it, uh, the, it, the shadow same, running. Same. It's um, so fucking beautiful. And I mean, it's just, there's so much more to say, I think, about like how that pit that pivot from that character is impacted by what we've seen before like his desire to use his better talents use his like sort of quirky white boyness as we've said already to like to military ends to personal and professional satisfaction and how where that actually gets him and sort of who rewards him in that i think this is a much larger conversation that we're probably gonna be able to get to in this shorter episode yeah absolutely among, among the arabs he's able to like be seen for he actually is someone special he can lead he makes like these calculated decisions that he wouldn't be allowed to that literally the british british military tells do not you know do these things you don't have the clearance to and then they work out and he's rewarded with that um the english military ends up excuse me his uh fellow you know british soldier end up coming around to that but by that time it's soured for him because he realizes he's too far in he's made too many like good bets and bad and no longer is like he i guess he's just like he's a little bit too far beyond um what would be like his he's no longer able to self-define with that he's more being defined by his actions by like the result of his actions and the result of his actions in the first half was we've taken Aqaba we have like reclaimed Arab territory from the from the right uh, occupationists and in the second half we are exploding trains killing what appear to be civilians and uh, you know and stealing their their things and we're triumphantly running across the top of a train and I think it's just a very smart placement of the intermission a very like uh, a subtle change in the character and in the way that we're seeing the character rather than by like him and his face and his big, beautiful blue eyes and more by like the result of his actions, those large landscape shots, him in the foreground and you're not seeing his face, the theme going wild. Uh, like I was just saying, I, I just think that's such a like, pivotal moment that i think after that it's why you don't see too many gifts or references of things that happen after that in the movie because it is just a fucking depressing downer until he leaves the military and it's so much more impactful for that yeah i think that i'm really glad we're talking about the intermission because it it ends with him going back home right and this is where he's finally started to sort of establish his legend and then like i think the reason why the turn happens right where it does like that is because you start to realize that the story's getting away from him at that point i mean this is where he's like i don't want to go back there i don't want to be promoted when i shot that person when i executed that man whose life i saved i enjoyed it you can't send me back there and they're all like you enjoyed executing uh, a man um like summarily, well, we obviously have to promote you and make you a. a you made Chronicle. Of this. this is going great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, it's because, like, really, this whole movie is about the. It's the story of a man who thinks or who wants to use this exploitative empire, sort of like the way that the empire has been using and abusing the world to tell its story, he thinks that he can do that, right? He's basically trying to out-British Empire the British Empire in the sense that he is going to take the resources they give him and the narrative weight that they give him and leverage it into telling his own story with its own ending and achieving something that he wants to achieve at their expense, literally. And the second half of this movie is about how actually the system will always win out, right? Like the, the British Empire bends him back into telling their story, telling their narrative. And he sees how it gets away from him, right? There's that brilliant scene where he's uh, captured and tortured. 
and the entire torture revolves around the fact that he's a white man. Right. Mm -hmm, And it like mm -hmm. it occurs to him that his being white is so much more important to the story than anything he will ever be able to achieve. Right. It's like no matter what he does in the history books, he is going to be a white dude. And I honestly like you can sort of like equivocate and I don't know exactly how I feel about this quite yet. But um, like I think that maybe you can read Lawrence as legitimately wanting to be sympathetic towards the Arabs, right? I think that's why at the end of the movie, he legitimately wants to give them Damascus. There's even like this suggestion and he almost outright says it to the British um, army that he is going to do a coup. Basically, like they're going to get to Damascus before the British Empire gets there. They are going to establish an Arab League at Damascus and they're going to give independence to the Arabs in, as opposed to making that sort of fold into the empire the way these things do. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it turns out that like when it when a military occupies um, a nation with their own strength and force of arms and then sets up the organization there. They don't usually relinquish it back to the people, it turns yeah, out. Yeah. And so the whole movie or the whole second half of the movie is this sort of like this fog of war thing where it's sort of like, okay, like as the air are, as the Turks are kicked out of Damascus, what's going to happen to this new sort of like coalition of Arab forces? Are they going to establish their own government or not? Uh, I think that Lawrence realizes that because of who he is, because of the story that the British empire allowed him to tell all of this time, he thought he was aiming toward the end, the conclusion of one story, right? Where um, he was going to, uh, like win for the Arabs and then grant the Arabs the independence and sort of get one over on the British Empire at the same time and sort of prove that that he is the superior man. And it turns out that actually he was playing into their hands all along. And it was the easiest thing in the world for them to turn the story of the corked up white boy who's goaded with the sauce back on its head to make it about how actually the Arabs could never have done this without the British. Uh, it was a British officer that allowed the Arabs to come together in the first place. Um, the Arabs are incapable of running their own government, um, which is the actual like racist narrative that the British Empire like leveraged against the Arabs at the end of this movie. Therefore, like Damascus has to come under control of the British government. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Now, please go rot and die somewhere. Right, uh, right. You've been promoted and also you're not on assignment anymore. Farewell. Sort of a gold watch kick in the ass thing. And Lawrence is left reeling, right? And he, he ends up realizing like, oh, all of this time, this ego, when I thought I was making myself the protagonist of reality, when I thought I was making myself this great man in history, I was still doing the bidding of macro historical forces that are bigger than me. And it and it burns so much because we get those scenes with Claude Rains and I'm going to forget the actor's name, but one of his other COs in the British military where they're like denying and half denying that the British have uh, plans to, I forget the exact term. Yeah, which is like, hey, Lawrence, I've got a bridge to sell you. Like, yeah. come on, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, oh yeah, no, we, we don't have designs on, on <laughs> designs the Arab on, desert. Yeah. It's like, okay, like when is the British Empire not had designs on literally any part of the world? It, like, like that's seeded from, like you said, just about the end of the first half and definitely like text by the beginning of the second. But we have spent so much time building that narrative of like, he's a good person. He's doing the right thing. Uh, he's going against his commanding officers to help the Arabs, you know, self-define and find independence from the Ottoman empire and fight back against, you know, German allies in world war one and be on the right side of history. And it's like, well, those little chinks in the armor that are revealed at the end of the first half and sort of like really, really widen in the second half were like, they, they undermine all of that. They undermine who, 
Lawrence thinks he is and what sort of force he thinks he is or he can accept that he is in the like that's why we get I think all that confusion around the character when he's tortured uh, right. in in is it in Sinai or once they've crossed this I forget exactly where but after he and Ali just tread into town and he says I am invisible wearing like pure white robes with a you know blonde hair and white face like he says I am invisible and I thought that was the first time I saw this I was like does he think that he's like is this his master plan is to like make his way in and get to somebody oh, I, close and I he's honestly just, I think that he thinks his will is godly at that literally point. he yeah. thinks that like oh if I will something to happen it must happen because is, I'm fucking Lawrence of Arabia it is fantastic that's just the amount of hubris that they're allowed again we've seen about two and a half hours of Lawrence's exploits by this point and we're allowed to like give him that and say okay he has gone through all of this we can say it's believable that he would think I am on top of all this and on top of the world. You know, I've fucking just, it's so fraught and so He starts to buy sad. his own, he starts to get exactly. high on his own supply, right? Like exactly. he's been selling this idea of himself as a messiah and now he sort of believes it. Um, I really wanted to just talk one more time about like how specifically manipulative and allegorical the idea of Lawrence and, and the way the specific way that he wins over these people is because it's so right. And like, I think the reason this is so impactful is because even as he does this, he is doing one thing and thinks he's doing another. And the movie is about his realization of those things. But like the fact that he really like, especially in the first act portrays himself as the one guy who capital G capital I gets it. Right. He's the guy who's like, oh, like, no, I'm not like the rest of the British Empire. Like, I understand who the Bedouin are. I understand that there are these nomadic desert warriors and like that is that is their strength and that's how they're going to win. And like, I understand that you aren't like a lesser people, a greedy people, a barbarous people. You're just a people that have been sort of um you have your own complex wars to fight with one another and you have a proud history. And he really like flatters them and and sells them this impression of themselves because it's the truth and because he believes it but he doesn't realize that the british are still going to turn that against him right like the, yeah, the, the story is still wins. going to be told the way it is like we see it multiple times he's so charming and he wins over alec guinness's character and, and he wins over um uh, Anthony Quinn's character, you know, like like by this combination of sort of like flattering and telling the truth and being strategically brilliant. And all this time, he's basically, without even realizing it, selling the Arabs on British occupation, right? Because that's ultimately what he ends up accomplishing for them. And um, he, he doesn't even know it until it's too late, until he realizes that he was never going to do anything else. And I think the really brilliant thing about this movie is it's not just that he was... Um, sort of deceived by the British Empire, he was deceived by himself, right? Because like, he didn't realize that all he really wanted the whole time was to satisfy his ego. And he didn't recognize how, like, indulging his ego in that way was actually playing into these great white savior myths that he thought he was subverting, that he thought he could... I mean, he ends up basically, quote-unquote, like helping the British sell this idea of the superiority of the white man, right? Um, back to the Arabs in order to sort of like justify their occupation of Arab owned country. Um, and he, he was instrumental in making that happen and sort of only realizes it afterward and realizes that his legacy is not going to be what he thought it was, but it is kind of what he deserves, right? Because it's what he really actually wanted 
was to be this yeah. person, was to do these things. And so there is this great turn. And then we, we like learn with the character um, what what it means to sort of like want the things that Lawrence wanted. Right. And, and what that will actually affect for the people he cares about. Right. It I think it comes back to the intermission because the intermission is where like the, the turn happens in there somewhere. I think that when we come back, we see these like signifiers that things are like that. He's not, that he's not really living up to who he thought he was like that. He is probably feeding the British sort of capitalist gain, like military industrial complex, the, the, the interests that they have in the Arabian peninsula that turn actually happens. And then it's slowly revealed. I think, I think hearing you talk about like sort of who he wanted to be, who he thought he was versus like who he's shown to be and who he realizes he is by the end. I think it's the, the, the turn comes for the audience in that actually like formally it happens without really showing us. And then sort of, uh, I, I'll rephrase that narratively. It happens without showing us. And then sort of formally it starts to, again, with the music changing and with yeah, well, sort of and his it, performance getting a little more deranged. And it's so human, right? Because yes. like it's, it happens by degrees and in ugly degrees, right? Yes. He, lo- he loses his two servants, his friends, exactly. uh, the two boys. Yeah. He ends up committing a massacre of fleeing Turkish forces, mostly be- and, and like mostly again, because like the idea that like he let this massacre happen of, um, a village, it like it doesn't fit in with his narrative, right? Mm-hmm. So he's so mad that he wants to take sort of a personal revenge. How well, could they do this to me? He's yeah, thinking, right? As exactly. he's like sitting in this this village of de- like dead civilians, um, and he ends up, you know, he shoots a bunch of fleeing soldiers. Uh, says, "Take no prisoners." He does a lot of very ugly things, and it turns out that like all of that ugliness is the the sort of ego um, deterred, right? It's sort of like mm-hmm. when he doesn't get his way, he's almost having like a tantrum. Um, well, and- yeah, like it is. It is in that. I guess we see how Lawrence has changed before he does, and I think that's a fantastic choice for the movie to make. Uh, like he starts to see that he's lucid, that he's like lost control, that he is a pawn, et cetera. If he ever, that he never really had control, I guess we can say, because he recognizes that I think it's Farage and Daoud, his two servants who've just thrown themselves on him as this like Messiah character. Um, they both perish do because directly because of Lawrence's choices, his choices to try and cross the Sinai, um, his choice to uh, like play fast and loose with the detonators to explode these trains and constantly continue that campaign. Uh, it's his own hubris that starts to destroy these things. And like it's around then he appears traumatized, but then it's only, I think once he gets back to uh, British command and everybody starts like congratulating him for it and they want to give him a new title and new everything. They want to like, encourage this attitude that he is starting to find is poisonous in this sort of like because he's they can now more directly harness it toward their own interests in the area um it's only then that he starts to think like it obviously it's no longer clean the the, the desert is no longer like he has um sort of started to absorb some of those realities about like who he's ta- whose lives he's taken why whose lives have been sacrificed. They see like the honor in it all. They see the benefit and the military strategy in it all. And all he can see is the sacrifice. I just, I think that it's interesting, like in another movie, in a lesser movie, I say that a lot because I have no other frame of reference, but to compare two things to each other in a lesser movie, I think we would see like the, the change starts to happen. The narrative push toward your, like the house always wins would happen after, um, Lawrence starts to see those personal losses, like his servants dying, 
Ali, you know, drifting away from him, uh, the Arabs start to lose his trust and start to like doubt him in his own doubt of the situation. And then we'd start to get the reveal that like, oh, Claude Rains has, uh, and the French and the English have plans for the area and, 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 but it would start with like a personal change. But I think in this movie, because it happens beforehand, because you can see that he's been egged toward this before he makes the decision for himself, before he has a conscious recognition of a change in himself. I think that just makes it hit so much harder for the audience that like, oh yeah, shit, he's been killing people essentially since the beginning of the movie, or he's been partially responsible for people's deaths. And these ones, here's why it all mattered. Here's why it was actually like one more notch in his gigantic moral, uh, you know, belt that would be, I guess I'm, I'm mixing metaphors here, but like one more knock against him morally and ethically and like for the actual like remnants of his soul that these things have been happening. And it only, only hits after, uh, like the narrative start to shift in that way anyway, I guess. Yeah. And then there's this great denouement, right? Where like he goes back home for the second time. He's promoted. Yes. Yet again, it's sort of first as tragedy, then as farce. He says he doesn't want to go back. He's he's done, right? Like he wants a normal life. He wants to be a normal man. He thinks the British Empire basically just like pet him on the head, right? Like it's so sad because they're like, hey, we're making a big push of Damascus. You're going to have to be a part of it. Like now, you know what we know, which is that we've been using you the entire time. Your narrative has always served our purposes. You got to just go, go and do it again. Again. And like Lawrence has this like beautifully idealistic, sad, naive notion where he's like, um, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm going to take Damascus, but God damn it, I'm going to take it for the Arabs. I'm going to give it to them. We're going to set up a government in uh, Damascus. And then it turns out that when you bring a bunch of disparate tribes who have really old, um, longstanding hatreds and animosity toward one another uh, into a single city and then immediately... Uh, make like they're going to put aside all of their differences for your vision of what they could be. It doesn't work out for you. And the British yeah. Empire knew that and the Arabs knew it and everybody except for Lawrence knew it because Lawrence thought he was good enough to make that happen. Turns out nobody is and everybody else was counting on it. And that's why it ends the way that it ends right on this unbelievably downbeat note, which like, this is my last thought, I promise. Uh, but like, also like, what a what a triumph that like this big, grand, epic movie ends on such a downbeat. Like, literally, just Lawrence in a car with one other guy, and the guy goes, "We're going home." And Lawrence is just like, "Yeah, home." And then he's just like looking out at the desert, and it's just like, boom, that's it. And it's just like I couldn't believe it. It's like I thought that this movie was going to end with like an epic, like you know, like score return reprise and something, but no, it's like, no, like sit with this now. Like you have to like take this home with you the end. Right. I, it's really, really something. Yeah. I mean, and it drives it home too at the end with, there are truckloads of British soldiers being bussed into Damascus. There are uh, Bedouin on camels yeah. walking out. There are Arab people are leaving and British people are coming in. He's literally watching a procession of Arab people leaving Damascus for British people to come in. Right. It's and it's like, good job, fan. bud. You did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here are the spoils of, of war. Um, just a fantastic, like really, again, four hours. I know it's a lot, uh, but if you happen to be listening to this podcast and haven't seen this movie already, I don't know why, but hey, Check it out. It's well worth seeing. It's playing as part of an, I think, still ongoing series on Peter O'Toole at the Trilon Cinema. You can check out all those movies at trilon.org. We have a couple segments left to our show. Uh, try and get through them quickly. Junk drawer. I guess I'll open it up. I have no idea. I personally don't have anything that I need to share out of this. I feel like I've gotten all of my thoughts right out there. Does anybody have any quick junk drawer thoughts? They'd like um, to I don't really have anything specific, but Omar Sharif is so fucking good in this movie. 
Um, oh, agreed. Really amazing. Uh, I I particularly love the way that his friendship with Lawrence irreconcilably sours at the end. I really thought that they were going to have a, a reconciliation, and I think it's it's much stronger for the movie that they don't. That he sort of like they have this understanding of each other, but he Sharif sort of like realizes a little bit too late, just like Lawrence, what the story was actually all about and what he was actually helping make Lawrence and creating um, for the people, his people and for uh, the future of the world. And he has this great line about how he's actually like afraid of um, he's, he's afraid of Lawrence and he's afraid of how much he loves him and how much he hates him. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's just sort of this idea that like, he realizes too late that like, Oh, like I played this part in creating this, this Messiah type character. And all this time I thought I was fighting for change. I thought I was fighting to deconstruct this myth that had been built and leveraged against my people. And in fact, I was helping create it. And he realizes that and his his reaction is, well, I guess I'm going into politics, right? There's this great resignation in his character that like, oh, I like this was about me becoming a politician all along. And now like I've learned horribly what it actually means to be a politician and what's left to me and the way that I can try to do some good with with this terrible mistake that I've made. Um, and it's a really beautiful like I think that he is like almost a co-protagonist in a lot of ways. And it's, it's really amazing to watch that play out in, in tandem with Lawrence. Uh, my only lingering thought is uh, the institution of cinema's portrayal of quicksand it continues to be one of the most <laughs> frightening things known to humanity. Thank you. Amen to that. Brother. God, what a terrible scene that is where you think for just a second, he's going to save him because like they've got the rope out or the, the like cloth or whatever. And like, he's holding on and then it's just, nope, he lets go and he's gone. And it's like, Oh fuck. It's crushing. You see the whole thing. It's, it's unfair. Uh, I believe that's the drunk drawer. Good. Give it a quick close because we have another segment before our final segment. Uh, it's called Good Grief. Give me a gif. Uh, we want to share some images that we think are worth going out with the episode on Twitter. Uh, we always pull gifts from each movie for the series, ep- excuse me, for the episode tweet um, along with a quote and something about it. Uh, check it out on Twitter at Trial of Podcast. Uh, but I want to toss to Cody for uh, some thoughts about what should be the gif for this episode. He's catching it. Oh, he's way down. Feel- oh, can he get it? Yeah. Unlike Charlie Brown, I succeed in sports, uh, except a couple weekends ago. I didn't do so well. But uh, my couple humble gifs that I will submit uh, around the six-minute mark, at the beginning when he's gleefully uh, riding his motorcycle, I sort of envision it like, you know those reaction gifs you see where it's like something with a lot of movement very quickly, and they're even like sped up, and it's like... I don't know. You don't even need to speed yeah. this one up. I just, yeah, in my head, just like a second of Lawrence, like, <laughs> like on his motorcycle with him. Just it's such a perfect the... opening shot for him because it's like, oh, it's this really guy's good. just an adventurous maniac. He's like yeah. basically like a fucking Robin Williams character in that moment on his motorcycle. <laughs> right. It's so good. Uh, the other one I'll submit uh, around fifty nine minutes thirty seconds. Um, the two, uh, the two of of Lawrence's uh, kid servants doing try attempting to like match walk with the camel. Um, and then the the other guy in the camp's like looking on, like, uh, 
Um, not unsure what's going on. I'm, I'm not formally submitting that one edit, um, which is at 17 minutes, 35 seconds. If we go with it, great. It just like, because it's flipping between two shots, I don't know how great that would look in GIF form, but it is a great edit. Um, people should watch the movie and see that edit. Uh, within the context otherwise i don't know fucking look it up on youtube you maniacs if you really are yeah, curious and don't want to watch the full movie uh, but those are those are my my pickies harry what do you All think right, you I, got? I have three i'll be or i guess four but they're quick uh the transition with the match classic unbelievable shot gotta do it it's where it's first introduced to the arabian desert um i guess two going in order sorry i don't have timestamps. i love when lawrence gets his robes uh, and he's just like playing with them by himself in the desert. And some guy comes up and he's like, what the hell are you doing, Whitey? <laughs> Basically, uh, that's like a hilarious moment. Um, let's see. The the shadow running along the train is big. And then honestly, I think that like the last shot of just sort of like the the two of them, I think it's like the last time we see Lawrence's face when he's just looking really sullen in the car as it drives away. Um, that would be a really good downbeat gif to go out on. Oh, uh, bonus five. There's one really moment, funny moment where uh, Lawrence is going across the desert and like you just see his face just covered in dirt and he just like has this hilarious thousand yard stare where he's just like, God, this sucks. And it just holds on it for like literally 30 seconds. He's just like, and I really liked that. So I don't know where that one is, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that comprises about three hours, 46 minutes of the three hours, 47 <laughs> movie. So it shouldn't be hard to find. Um, mine would be there's a shot near the beginning. I think it's after he's met Ali and Ali has killed his original guide uh, where they're on camels walking between two cliffs. And it's from them from behind sort of walking into the sunset. But the sun is nowhere to be seen. I just really like that imagery. Um, uh, that's uh, sorry. At They're standing at, at the. I forget exactly why I wrote this one down. Standing at the well is all the, is the only note I made. Anyway, I'm sure that it'd come back to me. Um, there's another one. They're walking in the desert at night. Uh, I like when he's um, when he's trying to decide how to proceed because the British military wants him to uh, convince Faisal to retreat, but he's like, no, these people have they've got moxie. Like we should go take Aqaba instead. But there's a whole night like dark night of the soul where his servants are following him around and he's just like traipsing down uh these really cool sand dunes in the middle of the night um there's that shot i think it's in the same scene where harry was saying where he gets his new robes and he's sort of like flitting around in the dry sand on them and he pulls out his knife to take a look at himself obviously pretty iconic shot but i really like it um walking on top of the train and then when the journalist after one of uh, lawrence's like bloody tirades um the journalist is with him and he's like here you're a rotten bloody person let me take your rotten bloody picture and another match cut happens at the flash and boom we're in a new scene that happens a lot more than in this movie than i remembered even like near quite near the end where uh abu taya is like he's stretching at night right after he's had that confrontation with ali about what it was all for kind of thing he's stretching at night and then match cut to the british officer opening up his blinds in the morning just fucking insane shit for 1962 also, yeah as a note did you notice that um when the british empire like basically throws the newspaper at lawrence to tell him he has to get back into damascus because he's done such a good job of creating this narrative it is literally that shot that, uh. that he took like you can tell it's that same one um i we forgot to talk about the journalist but that's a really good it's almost it's almost two on the nose but like a lot of really good lines about how the journalist is like literally yeah uh i'm i'm trying to sell um Americans getting into World War One, um, and I have to find a, a cool white hero to do that for yep. me, and that's why I'm following Lawrence around. And like the the king or the um, 
uh, the prince, Prince Faisal, is literally like, yeah, Lawrence is your man. Like, he'll he'll bring your people to war. That's what he does. It is fantastically cynical in those moments. Uh, okay, that was a good grief. Give me a gif. Um, we have one final segment. Uh, Harry, you want to help me ring it in? I will be delighted. It is the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you, gentlemen. That introduction drank from my well, so I shot it. Uh, I'm going to try and turn my my voice on to 1.25 speed because I know we're, we're working on a, a deadline here, but uh, I've missed a few weeks uh, in a row, and I plan to recalibrate with a little something I like to call Try Lawrence of Arabi Love. That's what we're going with. Uh, my tongue is tied knots. I'm just going to gonna uh rattle off some trivia items related to the film we've been talking about i will present each item one at a time after reading each prompt i will ask y'all in the order of harry then jason to respond you'll get a point for every correct answer closest to the correct answer and the person with the most points at the end will win as always trivia mafia rules apply here so use your noodles not your googles same as always with that let's go ahead and jump in uh number one should be reiterated that uh t.e lawrence uh the titular lawrence of arabia was a real person and the film was based upon his book um some quick hits he was indeed an army officer who played a key role in the arab revolt and he became a keen motorcycle enthusiast which led to his demise when he fatally crashed on one of his bikes my question for you all how tall was david lean the director of the film lawrence of arabia harry wow okay um i'm gonna go with 511 Right, five eleven is the guess. Locking it in, and uh, Jason. I don't think he was. I'm going to guess he wasn't a very tall man. I'm going to say five eight. David, tall and lean. Five eight. Uh, Going off a few sources on the internet, David Lean was uh, allegedly a lean six foot one. Whoa, six foot one. What about when he was standing up straight? Uh, six foot one and a quarter inches. Wow. That's, Whoa. that's so wild. Um, so yeah, David lean, allegedly lean, uh, Harry gets the point for being closest to that. Uh, still extremely anybody's game, capital A, capital G, anybody's game. Next, we'll take a look at Lawrence of Arabia's production company, Horizon Pictures. Maybe you've heard of it. I don't know. Probably not. Which of the following, my question for you, which of the following films was also produced under the Horizon Pictures umbrella, I'm going to give you three choices. Three, three choices. I'll put down my pen because it looked like I was holding up four fingers. Three choices. Uh, option A, On the Waterfront. Option B, Psycho. Option C, Some Like It Hot. So which one of those films shares a production company with Lawrence of Arabia, Harry? I'm trying to remember the, like, the openings. Uh, I'll try On the Waterfront, please. Thank you. Yeah, On the Waterfront, locking it in. And... Jason, are you gonna are you gonna match Harry's pick? You're gonna cover a little bit more of the spread. A lot of different ways you could go here. Three ways, in fact. We're gonna try and have sixty percent coverage because I'm gonna guess some like it hot. I don't I don't think it is that, but I would feel bad just guessing what Harry guessed. Gotcha. Hey, totally fair. Yeah, not try to to gamify it like a, a certain co-host might try to do. Um, who's not here today? Uh, the correct answer is indeed on the waterfront, uh, along with Columbia Pictures, Horizon Pictures. Those are the two production companies uh, that it operated under. Psycho uh, was produced by Shamley Productions, and then Some Like It Hot had, I think, three different ones that I'm not going to list because I don't feel like it. Uh, but that is, that's where we're at. So two points for Harry. Jason has yet to get on the board. A lot of opportunities uh, still to do so as we progress to number three. Uh, we should 
Shout out uh, again, Omar Sharif, who played um, Sharif Ali in Lawrence of Arabia, a great actor whose films I need to see more of. I've only seen a couple. Uh, in the much later stages of uh, Omar Sharif's career, he was in the 2004 Vigo Mortensen horse race film that my mom loves, Hidalgo. Uh, perhaps you have heard of that. Perhaps you haven't. Uh, going by Letterboxd, in what, uh, my question for you, in what place of Sharif's filmography does Hidalgo rank in terms of popularity. So like Hidalgo is the nth most popular film of Omar Sharif's career. Uh, what do you think about that, Harry? Uh, my mom is also a big Hidalgo fan, by the way. I think it's Viggo Mortensen, right? Moms yeah. love Viggo Mortensen. They <laughs> fucking sure Everybody do. loves Viggo Mortensen. They Viggo um, crazy for him. Yeah. I'm going to go with his uh, eighth most popular. All right. Eighth most, locking it in. And Jason, what do you think? My mom also likes Viggo Mortensen, but because of a history of violence. Um, I'm going to guess six. Wow. That's, a, that's a better movie than Hidalgo, so good Maybe. taste. Some, some are saying. I've been thinking about a history of violence ever since I first it's watched really it like good, a couple dude. years ago. Really it's so good. good. Uh, by Letterboxd Metrics, Hidalgo is the seventh most logged film of what? Sharif's. So each of you get a point. Yay! Uh, for, for context, uh Huzzah! Uh, of Arabia <laughs> is is number one. Doctor Zhivago is number two, and Ten Thousand BC is number five. Poor guy. Uh, this uh, if if you don't know what Ten Thousand BC is, uh, that's fine. Uh, number four, this <laughs> performance is uh the first of eight Peter O'Toole performances that garnered uh, Academy Award nominations. My question for you: How many of those nominations ended up being wins? for O'Toole uh, throughout his career. Harry? Uh, three. Harry's going with three. I've got it etched in concrete. And Jason, how many do you think? I'm going to give my boy the, the, the juice. I'm going to say five. Jason going with five, locking it in. Uh, Peter O'Toole won exactly zero performance-based Oscars. Uh, however, he did win an honorary award in 2003. So that's something i yeah, guess i don't have one of those it's so like, it's like when they gave uh ennio morricone an honorary oscar and i was like kind of pissed about i was like fuck <laughs> you like he's better than 99 yeah. percent of oscar winning composers like he's too good right. for your honorary bullshit i feel right. that way about uh tool as well yeah the other i i, I don't know kind of weird when this happens because it's like lol this this guy's tank is is tapped they gave it to him, Peter O'Toole, his honorary Oscar in 2003, and he was still nominated for another, I think, Best Lead Actor Oscar in like 2007. So he still had some juice what? left. But they were like, uh, no, you're done. Here's your your golden wheelchair, yeah. old man. And then they, they sent, sent him off. Wow. It's like it's like uh, like making albums after you've been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Where right. It's just like, all right, bud. <laughs> all right, Guns N' Roses. Like, let's pack it in. <laughs> We're going to put this album on the refrigerator. Look at that. What an accomplishment. Um, what an accomplishment uh, for y'all, particularly Harry, who is four for four. Um, and Jason's got a point as well. I, I, I do yeah, want to warn, I have a sound effect specifically for if Harry won the Cody's Noties game, and I don't think anybody's going to like hearing it, so that's just your warning. All right, so there's <laughs> oh, that. I, I like this. Now you're sort of like invoking terrorism <laughs> in yep. order to try to get me to not win. <laughs> you, you, I've got you a doomsday it? button. Don't make me push it. Uh, oopsie I have doodle. three hostages, and I'm going to start killing <laughs> them with every right answer. Teehee. <laughs> Uh, so uh, there is still uh, an opportunity. Uh, I'll just, yeah, there's still an opportunity for either of these gentlemen to win. Uh, as we head into this fifth and final question, we're going to turn to the year 1962, the year in which Lawrence of Arabia came out. 
Uh, call me lazy, but we're going back to the old letterboxed popularity well. Uh, what I'm going to do is list four notable 1962 released films. What I'm going to ask each of y'all to do is rank them in order of most to least popular as gauged by complex letterboxed metrics. Uh, and I'm going to list the four films and give the rest of my spiel. You, the four films y'all will be ranking are uh, Cleo from 5 to 7. Hey, previous episode. Uh, Dr. No, the first James Bond uh, film adaptation. Sanjuro, hey, previous episode. And To Kill a Mockingbird. So those are your four. Uh, so just the rest of the spiel for folks listening who may be uh, unfamiliar, they will get a point for each correctly ordered film. And again, there are going to be four films total in the mix. I just read them. Uh, so if they get the order perfectly correct, they'll get four points. If two of the films are in the right order, they get two points and so on and so forth. Use your imagination for the other permutations of what might happen. Uh, so again, those four films, Cleo from five to seven, Dr. No, Sanjuro, and To Kill a Mockingbird. We're ranking them in order of uh, most to least popular as gauged by Letterboxd. Uh, Harry, have I vamped enough? Yes, thank you. Um, yeah. Not confident at all, but I'm going to go with To Kill a Mockingbird as most popular, followed by Cleo de 507, followed by Dr. No with Sanjuro coming in fourth place. Gotcha. So I'm just going to read those back. Uh, your proposed order is to killing uh, to kill a uh, to kill a mockingbird. Hit it, uh, Cleo from five to seven. Uh, Doctor No and Sanjuro. Yep, that's right. Doopity do. All right, and over to Jason. What is your proposed order? From one to four is Cleo from five to seven. To kill a mockingbird. Doctor No and Sanjuro. Same as Harry, Roger. except for the first two swapped. Gotcha. I will still read them back regardless, Please. but thank you for clarifying. Yeah, uh, uh, Cleo, um, let's see, yep, Cleo, Mockingbird, No, and uh, Sanjuro. I couldn't Correct. find a way to shorten that. Cool. All righty. Well, thank you, gentlemen, very much for your participation. Just to get ahead of it, I'll say thank you. This has been Tri Lawrence of Arabia Love. I will now read the correct popularity order of these films as of yesterday afternoon and the, uh, that order is as follows in first place we have cleo from five to seven in second place we have to kill a mockingbird in third place we have dr no <gasps> and rounding out the order is sanjuro so jason got the order perfectly correct those four points with the other one he got earlier that puts him at five uh harry got two points so he ekes out the dub with a total of oh, six oh my god very, very close. Ooh, a well-fought strong battle. Strong game. Yeah, strong game that time. <sighs> yeah, pop off. IMO. Oh, I don't know. I'm just glad that, uh, you know, any 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 W for me or Jason is an L for Aaron. Um, and that's that's what we're all about here on Trilog. Yes, indeed, folks. <laughs> that's right. Thank you. So uh, that's that's all the pop-off I got. Although, uh, big shout-outs to Running the Gambit there, uh, Jason. I really didn't think Thank Leo you. was going to be letterbox popular enough to act that one out but i'm i'm glad i guess so I, shout outs to letterbox users for once i do feel like the proliferation of like tumblr gifts of that movie plus the fact that it's pretty widely available in recent years is just a perfect scenario yeah. whereas i will like, also say dr no is a really brilliant choice for that because it sounds like it could be very popular on letterbox james bond right? but also but like, that movie is kind of dog shit and it came out in like 1960 or something like how many people are going back to dr right no exactly thing, unless Everybody's you're doing like, a whole I don't you don't yeah, really right. need to do every single fucking James Bond movie. There are a lot of stinkers in there. And I right. think, how many people are going back to that? Like, ooh, Doctor, yes, <laughs> nobody. I guess 
I mean, I guess we know like five or six people who've seen Sanjuro, and that's probably everybody who's seen Sanjuro. So that was a definite number four. Uh, well, Harry did win- Sanjuro. It's a fine film. It just happens to be a sequel to one of the best movies ever made. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, we, not we, one of the best we, movies ever. Would made. you believe that there are some people that think Sanjuro is better than Yojimbo? Go that's, figure. That's a crazy person. That opinion. is a wild thing. <laughs> yes, indeed, folks. That is a wild thing to say. Uh, well, I do. I did promise uh, a little bit of terrorism. Um, I believe I have the that this Lawrence of Mylabia. That is Kim Cattrall saying Lawrence of Mylabia from Sex in the City 2 after she is informed that a horny Dutch capitalist is staying at her hotel in Abu Dhabi. Thank you so much for listening to Try Love. Thank you so much, Cody, for another round of Cody's Noties. Uh, this has been an episode about Lawrence of Arabia. Check it out wherever you can see movies. I had to watch it on Amazon, um, but I think it's pretty widely available in a lot of other places. Check it out wherever you can. Find the Trilons programming schedule at trilon.org. Find us on Twitter at Trilon Podcast. Find me. See, we're, we're limiting the scope from the Trilon to the podcast back to me this is a reverse it's beautiful synchronicity you can find me on twitter at nintendoofus just envision the first two lines of green days jesus of suburbia but swap in lawrence of arabia that's (laughs) been playing in my head um and that'll be annoying for you too i've been cody narvison you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh and i've been harry mack and you can find me on twitter at that excuse me punish take and remember nothing is written Uh, everything is spoken because this is a podcast. Good night, everybody.